Okay, today is July the 6th, 2010. And I don't think I have any announcements. How about that? I probably do, but I can't think of them. Oh, Glory Be Girls is the 21st. There's one for you. Okay, let's prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of our provision. You give us logistical grace, whether we deserve it or not. We are your children. You give us everything we need in order to fulfill your plan. There's plenty of woes that go around every day. We don't have to wring our hands because we recognize that you are omnipotent, omniscient, full of grace and mercy. And you think about us every tick of the clock. We're so thankful for that. We have everything to look forward to, nothing to dread. So we pray that you will help us to eat that manna from heaven this very evening to nourish our souls while we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 11, I know that verse 11, actually the sentence starts in verse 10. I guess we'll start in the second sentence in chapter 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10b. But we urge you, brethren... To excel still more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. I just happen to have on our notes up on the screen here the part that says, Mind your own business. I wonder why that just happened to be there. You reckon we all need a reminder? <clears throat> of course, this has a double meaning. It can mean what most of us think when we hear the term, mind your own business, and that means to not to poke your proboscis into the business of others. And it does mean that, but it also means to take care of your own business. So we are to take care of our own business and not mind the business of someone else who is not our responsibility or not our affair. So it has that double meaning. And some of the Thessalonian believers were not doing this with regards to that meaning of taking care of their own business. They had already been taught about Jesus Christ's return and they made a misapplication thinking that he could return any week or maybe any month. And so uh, they weren't taking care of business. They just thought, why should we continue to work? Why should we continue to plant trees and do other things that people would normally do when Christ might return any minute? We'll just sit back and wait for him. And they became a drag on the society because others had to, to pick up the slack. They had to uh, take care of these people who were slackers and... This is what Paul meant when he said, mind your own business. Of course, it always means not to interfere or intrude in other people's lives where you're not wanted. We're also to take care of our own business. And the next phrase, and work with your hands. I got on a bit of a tirade when we ended last time about working with your hands because 
From my perspective, I think we live in a snooty society, one that thinks that those who are deemed blue-collar workers are not quite up to par, that they're somewhat inferior of those who work in an office who uh, don't work with their hands. And that rubs me the wrong way. I already covered all that last time, so I won't go into it again. But working with your hands really is uh, has... Uh, not so much a literal meaning. Nearly everyone did work with their hands back when this was written. But he's just saying, take care of your own business. If you're busy working with your hands, taking care of your own issues, you're not going to have that much time to interfere in other people's business. And so uh, you're not also not going to have to depend on others for support. And then that brings us up to where we are today moves us into 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> this is, again, supporting the idea of working with your own hands, not depending upon others. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anybody will not work, neither let him eat. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? I don't remember seeing that one in any of the programs that are issued by our, what? Yeah, Second, Th Second Thessalonians 3.10. Did you look it up? Neither letting me. Okay. It's okay. No, I don't mind to be double-checked because I want to make sure I have the right address there. I just got the last part there. If anybody will not work, neither let him eat. I can remember when I was building log houses, there was a time I was going to build a, a log home in the Burton area. So I put a advertisement in the Banner Press for some help. And so uh, some people responded. They called me. And I said, okay, well, meet me at such and such a place tomorrow morning at such and such a time. Okay. So I got there, and to my surprise, one of the people that had responded that I said to meet me there was a woman. She was a big woman. And I said, oh, I said, I didn't know that you were a woman. I don't know if you really would be able to, to work like we do. It's pretty hard work. Uh, she assured me that she could do it. And she had a friend of hers that also answered the advertisement. And so I said, well, since you're already here, uh, we'll give it a whirl. So we went to work, and by 12 o'clock, she went and got in the truck and slept the rest of the day. She said, uh, we worked not quite four hours, and that was enough for her. She said... And her friend worked the rest of the day, but he quit at the end of the day and said he wasn't that hungry, that he never worked that hard in his whole life. And it was just an average day for us. And so I assumed, and I even asked them if this was the case, that they could make nearly as much money by doing nothing, collecting welfare, than they did working for, for this money. And so they decided it wasn't worth the work. They would just... Let the government pay for them. Let somebody be a burden on someone else. And I, I saw this for first hand. You see, when somebody isn't working, someone else has to pay the bill. A lot of people think, well, all this welfare comes from the government. Well, the government has zero money. They get it from other people. That means what could go into uh, other things has to go for those who are not working. And so you had believers that had made a misapplication of doctrine, and they weren't working. And even in the second letter to the Thessalonians, he, he kind of ratcheted up the, this meaning even more by just being as plain as you can be. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. And I fear that there are a lot of people that have been on the dole for generations. I'm talking about up to three generations, and they are used to doing nothing other than going and getting their check from the mailbox, and that's about the ex most exertion that they do. And 
I don't think any nation is able to prosper, in, in some cases not even to survive when that continues to grow. <clears throat> so uh, we have, just as we commanded you, again, Paul was repeating something he had already told them. These apostles were not shy at all about saying, I'm going to repeat something. I know you already know it, but here it goes. I'm going to repeat it again. And now he's saying this about to work with your hands and mind your own business, uh, just as we commanded you. He's just reminding them of that. So I hope that when I go over things again, did y'all see that? <laughs> I don't know when those things pop up. What did it say? Are you getting it? Is that what it says? I know that's one of them. I have a, a gyro tools that I, that I put on this computer about a year ago. And I... I put it on there and try to set it to where you push a, the right button or the, or the wheel two times or di different things and it does certain things. And I can't even remember what the settings are. And so every once in a while I'll do something, I'll hit the mouse or I think you can put it up in this corner. Well, so anyway, it just does what it does. So it's a little surprise. It keeps us alert. Okay, verse 12. Now we have a purpose clause. We have the Greek word hina, H-I-N-A, and it's a conjunction. And this indicates the purpose or the why believers should endeavor to live a quiet life, mind their own business, and work with their hands. These are the, the commands we have. Well, they were actually, he was urging them to do these things. Now, the hina, those who know the Greek, when they see that, they say, okay, this is a purpose clause. This is why we should do it. So here we have the reason why, and it starts with that you may behave. Now, this word you should be familiar with. It's only one word in the Greek, and it's peripateo. And that is a verb. It's a present active subjunctive. And it means peri. It's a compound word. means uh, about. And pateo means to walk. So it means to walk about, but it's really a metaphor for the way that you should live your life. You, could walk, you should walk in such a way. We walk by faith and not by sight. We should live our life in this way. And as the present active subjunctive, that means that we should continue to do this. And it's the active voice. We are the ones that are to do it, but it's in the subjunctive mood which means it's only a potential. It depends on something for this to become a reality. It's talking about uh, pateo means to walk about a daily routine. Our daily routine may or might, may not be in according with your position of royal ambassador. It depends upon your attitude towards God and His Word. So, we are to live a quiet life, work with our hands, and mind our own business so that we may walk, we may behave ourselves. we get to it properly in a moment. But we are royal ambassadors. We recognize this. We saw that from Second Corinthians chapter 5. We represent Jesus Christ. And so if we are minding our own business and trying to live a quiet life, and working with our hands, then we are fulfilling our role as an ambassador. There's, I don't know why people want to live a noisy life, because there's enough noise and there's enough excitement without trying to uh, get gusto out of your life by having issues and excitement. A lot of times there's excitement just between neighbors. Uh, sometimes there is noise between neighbors. Sometimes there are gunshots between neighbors uh, over the silliest things. So the purpose is that we may behave and then we have the word properly. And that's the Greek word, euskomenmanas. Euskomenmanas. E-U-S-C-H-E-M-E-N-O-S. It's an adverb, and you should recognize those first two letters. The E-U 
means good. Remember like the Eucharist? Eucharist? Good grace? Charis is grace. So it's good and schema means a good scheme. And it means well-fashioned decorum, propriety, of high standing, honorable, or noble. So it's to have a good scheme that we may behave properly means that you have a good scheme of things, the way that you're living your life. Now I have the word here, if you can see it, escutcheon. By the way, I had to look that up. I put it on my... I typed the word the way I thought it was supposed to be, and then I went to my spelling, and it, it didn't recognize it. I was too far off. But I kept searching, and finally I found out how to spell it. Escutcheon. Do you all know what an escutcheon is? If you, uh, every plumber knows what an escutcheon is, because if you have a pipe coming through the floor or through a wall, that little metal piece that goes around it to hide the... the it's a finishing touch. Usually they're made out of chrome, sometimes plastic. And it dresses it out. It makes it look nice. That's called an escutcheon. Uh, no plumbers here, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I'm not I'm going to get to that. But, I mean, this is... <laughs> this is I happen to know this because I was a plumber at one time, and we used all different kinds of escutcheons. Some of them, they had even the kind that if you already had the pipe through the wall and it usually had a valve or a stop or something on it, you couldn't just take an escutcheon later after the fact and put it over the, the pipe. So they had the kind that would split open and you could split it open and then put it on the wall and it would make it look nice and dress it out. So that's one um, use of the word escutcheon. Also, if you see, see a, a coat of... Uh, heraldry. It usually it's to be a shield or something like that, and they'll have letters or words on or whatever. That's also called an escutcheon. And I was trying to make this you eschemenos looking kind of like escutcheon, but I don't know. I can't be dogmatic about that at all. But if you put an escutcheon on something, it makes it look like it's a good scheme. <laughs> Uh, that's why I just put it in, in parentheses. And I was trying to make a deal out of that, but it, I don't know. I'm not dogmatic about that at all. Other than here, this word is used two times in the New Testament. Here they are. Let us behave properly as in the day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Both of those, as you see, end in L-Y. That's, that's what adverbs end in, is L-Y. And that word is the same in those two. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40 especially, uh, has to do with churches are to do everything properly and in an orderly manner. This is in the context of those who were speaking in tongues. Evidently, in the first century church, when the, before the canon of Scripture was completed and the tongues was still extant, it probably got kind of rowdy. It got a, a little bit animated and emotional when you had someone stand up out of the clear blue and start speaking in a foreign language and, uh, and, and speak it perfectly. Of course, the people that were in the church didn't understand it, but there may have been someone else in that body that spoke that language. And so the person who was speaking that language that they didn't know that had the gift of tongues, the person who might be in that group that was a foreigner that understood that language, he would understand it. Or someone that had the gift of interpretation would be able to understand it. But no one else would understand it. But you can, you can imagine that it would get people's attention. If we were sitting here and all of a sudden, oh, I don't know, let's say Vidal stood up and started saying, I said it, my boy, I said it, and he started battling all. I guarantee you people would be turning around and seeing what was going on. And it could easily get out of order. And so we have this verse, everything in a church the manner in which they worship, 
their order of service, their routine should always be done properly and in an orderly manner. Have you ever, well, maybe some of you have been to some of these churches. I've never been to one, but I've seen them on TV where they're rocking and rolling. I mean, they are gyrating. There's nobody in their seats. They're running up and down. Their arms are up. People are wailing. Uh, Some of them are stuck to the floor. Some of them are, uh, oh, it's just chaos. And all you have to do to recognize this is not what God has for his people to worship is 1 Corinthians 14.40. That is not done in a properly and orderly manner. Now, some, there are no doubt people who have come to this church before and left and thought, well, that church is okay, but it's Dullsville. There's, there's no uh, amen in, there's no praise Lord, hallelujah, there's nobody raising their hands, there's nobody speaking in tongues, there's nobody rocking and rolling in there. And so they might even say we are not really a spiritual church because that's what some people think spirituality is. Now, I have had people who came here before. I've even had them come up to me and ask me, is it okay if I raise my hands? Is it okay if I say, hallelujah, praise the Lord? And I just said, well, I'd rather you not. And they didn't like that. Because that is not done in an orderly manner. And it's very distracting. So we understand that spirituality is not emotions. And if you do get emotional, that's all right, but... Try to not disturb others around you if you do get emotional. If you want to say amen, that's okay. I don't care. As long as you don't get into contest. That's the problem with people saying amen, amen sometimes. Because you can have people trying to out amen the other person. The one whoever says the, the most amens and the most emphatically, well, they must be the most spiritual. Now, we don't have any of that here, but... Uh, There is no rule in here that says you can't get emotional over something, but if you get emotional, just try to keep it to yourself. I mean, uh, there isn't going to be any of this, any of this business. Boy, I went to a cantata one time. I don't know how I got roped into that deal. I was standing way up in the balcony of the Shoes Church, and this woman got in front of me, and she started doing all that. She never sat down. I couldn't see a thing. She sat right in front of me. And the arms were up, and then they were down, and then they were up, and then they were down. One time when they were up like this, I was so tempted to go, boop, you know, right under here, tickle, tickle or something. But I thought, well, it's probably not the proper thing to do. It wouldn't have been done in an orderly manner. There's a right way and a wrong way to live, and believers certainly should be living the right way according to the Royal Family Honor Code, which means thinking divine viewpoint and loving others with impersonal or unconditional love. There are areas when we're not sure what to do, but the principles remain. If you're ever in doubt, just remember, we are required by God to treat others as Christ treats us. And that means we give them what they don't deserve. And that is unconditional love. Now, all this is done. You see here that we are to behave properly. And that's saying towards outsiders. This refers to unbelievers, those outside the body of Christ. Believers who are not obligated to uh, love one another, are not only obligated to love one another, but also to be good testimonies to unbelievers. People take note of whether your behavior is good or bad, especially if you are a professing Christian. And whenever you leave this building, wherever you go, especially in around this area, you represent Country Bible Church. And all you have to do is slip up, and people will have an excuse to say, "Uh uh-huh, That is that old kooky church out there. It's not even a denomination. We don't know what it is. We don't know what they do, but they're not part of the in-group. But more importantly than that, we represent Jesus Christ. And unbelievers, as well as believers, are watching. And this is what he's talking about, is that we have to watch our behavior 
towards outsiders. One reason God allows adversity in a believer's life is because unbelievers and carnal believers can see the power of the Holy Spirit and how God's grace is always sufficient in believers who is faith rest. Well, there must be a typo there. The point is, outsiders is referring to unbelievers outside of the body of Christ. And any time you say or do something that is going to hurt your testimony towards those type of people, it's a serious matter. Have you ever been nasty to someone and then later on started thinking about it? You had the opportunity to witness to that person. It's kind of hard to witness to someone you had an argument with and you're on the outs with them. A little bit harder to, to witness to someone like that because they're not interested in what you have to say about the Word because they're going to consider you a hypocrite. You're already, in their eyes, persona non grata. Already, they don't like you. And do you think that they're going to listen to a testimony about how a righteous and gracious person is supposed to live? Are they going to listen to you talk about the grace of God when you haven't been gracious to them? That's the idea. People are aware of what you say, what you do, where you go, so you can't afford to let your guard down and take a short vacation down to the cosmic compound. <laughs> but it's tempting, isn't it? Of course, none of y'all probably ever are tempted to get even with people, especially in traffic. <laughs> oh, I don't know what your temptation is, but you're better than me if you can go to Houston and be that alert with regards to your behavior towards outsiders when you're in your car in Houston. And nobody will let you in. And you do try to finally squeeze in and they speed up and nearly have a wreck. And then they wave at you with a funny gesture. And all you're trying to do is survive. You ever been in that situation? I was in my car with my daughter and uh, another young girl. I think they were about six years old. And this carload of teenage boys came by and they swerved so hard I had to run off the road and we were going about 60 miles an hour and I just barely was able to maintain control of that car and they did it just to show off, just to uh, cause trouble and that made me so angry that they, not so much me, but they endangered these two, two children that I hit the gas and I was after them before I even could think and I mean, I had a grip on that steering wheel and my teeth were clenched and I was out for blood for about 20 seconds. Then I remembered, I'm going to have to go 90 to catch these guys and I have two girls in the car, two little girls that I'm supposed to be trying to protect. And so I just backed off and then I just put them in the Lord's hand. And I never know what happened to those guys, but I still remember it. So that's how fast, though, that we can forget that we are ambassadors for the most time. And those vacations down to the cosmic compound aren't that enjoyable anyway, are they? <clears throat> Satan's lie is that revenge is sweet. Revenge will put you in the divine woodshed, and that is not sweet. And to be in any need, and excuse me, and not be in any need. So what are, we, what are we doing? We have to watch ourselves towards outsiders and not be in any need. Some of the new believers misunderstood the doctrine of Christ's return, and they quit their jobs thinking he would return within a few months or weeks. They became a hardship on others they depended on for logistical support. They couldn't pay their bills and fell into disrepute with unsaved merchants. So... These guys would go in to get goods, food, whatever they needed, from merchants that were unsaved, and they weren't paying their bills. 
They were depending on others to support them. And this is a no-no. Here we have Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, that would be unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity. When you're around unbelievers, which from time to time we are, we should make the most of the opportunity. We should treat them in grace and look for opportunities to witness to them or impart some truth to them, biblical truth. Ephesians 5:15 through 17. Therefore, be careful how you walk. There's that word again, peripateo. That means be careful the way you live, your manner of living. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the will of the Lord is that you be alert at all times and don't fall prey to your old sin nature or the temptations of the world or to... Get angry and seek revenge, any of those type of things. You have to work, walk wisely. The Bible tells us to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as, as doves. That's what it takes, and that takes doctrine. Churches and Christians who don't pay their bills have a hard time describing how God is righteous and just to unbelievers without coming across as hypocrites. Believers who cheat other people and treat them unkindly throw a stumbling block between them and the gospel. Have you ever thought of that? Once you've done something, once you've said something that has offended an unbeliever, if you haven't taken care of your business, you're not responsible, and they recognize it, you have a lot harder time getting across to them what needs to be given with regards to God's truth. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we're going to embark. This is the verse that starts a huge, important portion of God's Word. This is the eschatological part that is so important, and we're going to take it piece by piece. But the first sentence is, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The pagan world in Paul's day had no hope of life after death. A typical inscription on a grave demonstrates this fact. And this was the inscription. I was not, I became, I am not, and I care not. And that's pretty depressing, isn't it? I was not, there was a time before they were born, I became, they were born, and now I am not, they're dead, and they don't care that they're dead because as far as they were concerned, there is no consciousness beyond the grave. When, when a person dies, that's it. It's the finale. It's over. I got that quote from Warren Risby's Bible Exposition Commentary, Exposition of the New Testament. Now, this is an important point. Paul had taught the Thessalonians all about the rapture, but they had a question about believers who died before the rapture. They all had friends, relatives that had died. Jesus Christ had not returned yet, and they didn't know what was going to happen to them. Would they miss out on the rapture or be at some disadvantage compared to those who were still alive when Christ returned? So you can tell from the very outset when this verse starts that Paul is not here trying to address the rapture when Jesus Christ returns for his church as if they didn't know anything about it. He is specifically addressing an issue that evidently he taught and they didn't understand or else he didn't teach it and they need clarification on this point. So it's not just talking about the rapture. He is addressing a specific point of doctrine that they did not know. And then Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. And this being uninformed was very much used by Paul as far as an expression. Paul was very concerned about believers lacking knowledge and often used phrases like this one. In Romans 1.13 he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Some translations say, I do not want you to be ignorant 
In Romans 11.25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed. 1 Corinthians 10.1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. 1 Corinthians 12.1, I do not want you to be unaware. 2 Corinthians 1.8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I think he's trying to make a point. And even Peter got in on it when Peter said in 2 Peter 3.8, But beloved, be not ignorant. Our quest for spiritual knowledge is not so that we can lord it over others who don't know as much about the Bible uh, as we do. That's not why we're here. We're not here to amass as much knowledge so we can strut about and lord it over other people and pick fights with them, arguments about the Bible, and then shine because they're so ignorant. Listen, that's one of the easiest things to do, and that's an occupational hazard for the adolescent believer is go talk to someone, bring up the Bible, and then any issue, doesn't matter what it may be, but especially one that they would wax eloquent on, and then try to show off by lambasting them with their knowledge about the Bible. That's not why Paul kept saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be unaware. It's not for that reason. And yet there's always some believers that do that. We seek knowledge in order to properly execute the Christian way of life and to fulfill God's perfect plan for us. No one can honor God or be good servants if they are spiritually ignorant. Our purpose is to glorify God. Our purpose is to be good and faithful servants. Our purpose is to execute the Christian way of life in the church age. Understand and utilize the mystery doctrines of the church age. All of these things are our job. This is what we should be doing, but it's not to strut about. It's to be able to serve God in the way that we should. And you cannot do that in ignorance. You know, I don't care how well-meaning a person is, how sincere a person may be, how spiritual they may feel, feel, that doesn't make any difference. If they are ignorant, they can't serve God. They can't reflect His glory. It takes knowledge to do that. But we don't go after knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. But we have to have it. Paul certainly made an issue about understanding and not being ignorant. Okay, then he says, let's go back up here, look at it in context. (coughs) Excuse me. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And now we're going to pick up that phrase about those who are asleep. This refers to believers who had died. The death of a believer's body is spoken of as being asleep. This does not refer to the heresy of soul sleep. Have any of you ever heard about people who have bought into the heresy of soul sleep? When I was in my late 20s, I used to tune in to a radio station that had the Worldwide Church of God with Garner Ted Armstrong. And then his son took over uh, Ted, what was it, uh, Ted Armstrong. And they were dynamic speakers, and they would speak with authority. And I didn't know a whole lot then, but I knew I was tired of the milk toast. Uh, wishy-washy pastors that never took a stand on anything. The only problem was they believed in this soul sleep. They thought that once that once you died, you ceased to exist until the resurrection. Now, there are those who are pagans, those who are unbelievers, who think when you die, you cease to exist. There's no more consciousness. There's no more thinking. You are, oh, it's over. It's just like, turning out the light. It's, it's, it would be like you going to sleep and never waking up. That's what some people think. And I'm here to tell you that this, the doctrine of soul sleep, that you cease to exist, whether it's from then on or whether it's just until the resurrection, is heresy, and I'll prove it with these points. First of all, there are similarities and differences between physical sleep and physical death, and here are some of them. It can be difficult to tell whether a person is dead or just sleeping. Is that not true? Have you ever walked up on someone that was asleep 
And how can you tell whether that person is dead or asleep? Especially the guys. The guys can fall asleep watching TV. You know, they're, they're like this. And I don't know, maybe the ladies come in sometimes. I hope he's breathing. I mean, he's, it very easily could be dead. And that's why one of the reasons that we're talking about uh, this, uh, those who are asleep is, uh, first of all, you know, it's not talking about those who are taking a nap. It's not talking about those who are physically sleeping. It's talking about those who have died. But the reason that this euphemism is used for believers is because it so perfectly illustrates what happens to the body. Point number two, some sleeping, someone sleeping does not cease to exist, nor does the believer cease to exist when he dies physically. So that's the, that's the parallel. When a person goes to sleep, what is he going to do? He's going to wake up, isn't he? Now, those that, there are those who think that when you die, you, you don't ever wake up again. And like it's, it's an eternal sleep. You're just, you just cease to exist, which is not true. Number three, sleep is temporary and death is temporary. temporary. Now, you've heard it said that is, uh, death is permanent. But even physical death, for whether it's the believer or unbeliever, is temporary. Now, it's permanent to us. I mean, we understand that when someone dies, that we don't see them again unless Jesus Christ returns and they're a believer. We're not going to see them again until that point. It's permanent in that sense, but it's really not permanent. According to the Bible, when you go to sleep, you're not going to sleep forever, are you? I mean, you're going to wake up. Even people in comas... A lot of them wake up. And when you die physically, that body goes to sleep. Your soul and spirit isn't asleep. I'm going to prove by several verses that you're still very much awake. There's still life beyond the grave, even before Christ returns. But the body is temporarily asleep because for the believer, when Jesus Christ returns, then that body is going to be quickened. It's going to come to life. As we're going to see the Word in just a moment, it's going to stand up. So that's not permanent, is it? Even for the unbeliever, they are, their body is... is uh, now, the Bible doesn't say they're asleep. It never says that for unbelievers. But even physical death for the unbeliever is temporary. Because they're going to be resurrected at the great white throne. And in some form of a resurrection body, it's not going to be like Christ. But they're going to stand before Jesus Christ. Stand before Jesus Christ in a resurrection body. So physical death is not permanent for the believer or unbeliever. So let's get that straight. Most people, if you said, well, you know, death really isn't permanent. Well, they probably won't take issue with you over that. Four, people who are asleep will wake up. Believers who die will be resurrected. There's the, there's the parallel. Number five, you might find this one interesting. The Greek word for asleep is kemi. That E-I is a diphthong that gives the sound A. So kemi, which means to lie down. That's what kemi, when you see asleep, the word there is kemi. And it means, it's the same word they would use as if, well, this guy got tired, he partied all night and went to sleep. It'd be kemi. I mean, just to close your eyes and go to sleep. And it means literally to lay down. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasia, A-N-S-T-A-S-I-A, which comes from two Greek words, ana, which means up, and histomy, which means to stand. Only a body can stand up at the resurrection. So you have the sleep. The Greek word means to lay down. And for the resurrection, anastasia, it means to stand up. And that is what a body does. So again, you can see why this word was so appropriate to use when they say to those who have fallen asleep. These are believers who were, whose body was temporarily in the grave and will be awakened, it will stand up, Anastasia, 
when Christ returns. Number six, a soul or a spirit cannot lay down or stand up. That's not what a spirit does. You know, a spirit or a soul does not get tired and it doesn't have to stand up because the soul and the spirit is not in bodily form. You have a soul and you have a spirit. You have it right now. Where is it? Can you see it? No. It's, it's intangible. You can't see it. It's invisible. Do we have a soul and spirit? How do we know? The Bible tells it. tells us what it is. It even has special words for, for the knowledge that comes into the, the noose and it gives us the, uh, the cardia. It's the dominant portion of the soul. The Bible separates the defining dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow. Soul and spirit are not the same. And soul and spirit are not body. It's the body that this is referring to. And these Thessalonian believers were wondering, okay, well, what happens to those that have already died? Those who are asleep. Their bodies are in the grave. They're sleeping. It's as if your, their body is sleeping. Why? Because there's going to be a day for believers when that body who is Kami laying down is going to stand up. And it's only a temporary sleep. It's just like what we do every night. I saw on the, on the uh, TV yesterday, it was talking about some disease where and it's very rare, but people are not able to sleep. And after about a year's time, or maybe it wasn't quite that long, they die. Do you know that your body, if you can't sleep, your, your, the, the, the necessity for, for your body to shut down and repair itself and when you're asleep is so necessary that if you don't do that, you can die. They had some name for it. I don't remember what it is. So all of us are familiar. Tonight, at some point in time, all of us are going to do the same thing. We're going to lay down and we're going to sleep. We do it every day. So it was very familiar with these people. And when you go to bed, you may set the alarm, you may take a pill, you may take some something, a warm milk or whatever your routine is. One thing we all have in common is we're expecting to wake up in the morning at some time, aren't we? And that's the idea what he said to those who are asleep. He wants to give them the idea there's nothing to be afraid of for us personally. Death is just a temporary sleep of the body. And for those who have already gone on before, their bodies are just temporarily in the ground. They're sleeping, but they're going to wake up. This is in that very first phrase he was already telling them what they didn't know is that those believers who preceded them in death aren't going to miss out on a thing. That when Christ returns, in fact, they're going to get their resurrection body first. Maybe a second or two first. So they're not going to miss out. Okay, uh, I don't want to go to that one first. I have these in order. Now, I'm going to give you some verses that would substantiate what I'm saying, that there is no such thing as soul sleep. When God creates the soul for every person that is ever born, He creates it out of nothing, and when He imputes it to that person or to that uh, that fetus when it emerges from the womb it becomes a living soul it becomes a person and that soul and spirit never dies and the body takes a temporary nap but it, it's going to wake up now this is great news isn't it you go talk to most people and you say hey guess what i learned at bible class what well death is temporary yeah. you know that ought to get the discussion going shouldn't it Okay, Genesis chapter 35, verse 18. And it came about as her, that is Rachel's, soul was departing, for she had died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Did you see that? As her soul was departing, that she named... Her soul was departing from her body. Her soul didn't cease to exist. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 13 through 15. This is a hoot. This whole chapter. 
this is when Saul was no longer trusting God, so he went to the witch of Endor to read her crystal ball. He was going to have a seance. And seance is baloney. It was then and it was now. It still is. You, you don't talk to the dead. You might talk to a ventriloquist demon that sounds like the dead, but the dead don't come up normally. But in this case, it really happened. And the witch of Endor got so blown out of her mind, she didn't know what to do. It wasn't a routine thing. She was faking it and it actually happened real. And she was going out of her gourd. And here you had Saul. He was, he was calm. He thought, well, this is, the, this is what's supposed to happen. Anyway, here we go. And the king said to her, that was King Saul. <laughs> do not be afraid. But what do you see? You see, she was, she was scared. She never really saw a person come from the grave. And here he is. He's consoling. He's telling her. Don't you think it should be the other way around? That the one that's given the seance should be telling the other person. Now, don't be afraid. But here you have King Saul trying to calm her down. Don't be afraid. But what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, this is really Samuel. He came up. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He was not a happy camper about this. But God allowed it for a particular purpose. Now, if a person when they die, ceases to exist. What is Samuel doing talking to Saul? And it goes over, it talks even more. It talks about what he was wearing and it goes on. And, he, and Saul said, well, I, I, the, I, the Lord wouldn't answer me, so I came to this witch. And, uh, now, and he said, Samuel essentially told him, tomorrow you're going to be with me. What does that mean? Tomorrow you die. Anyway, this is, this is another illustration. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 21. <clears throat> this is when Elijah, remember the, the woman he was staying with and the child died, her son died, and he went up and laid himself over it, and God brought, it, brought him back to life. This is verse 21. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. And the word life here is nephish, and it can mean life, soul, person, or mind. So that life force, the person, came back to him. Got that? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Is that pretty clear for you? That's what happens at death. Then the dust will return to the earth. What is the dust it's talking about? This tent that we live in, this temporary tent. Do you know, if, if you took all the chemicals that make up our body, they say that uh, it, would live, it would sell for about $5. I mean, that's what this, if you look at the materials that this body is made out of, the Bible calls it dust. I don't know what all it is. I think there's some carbon in there and some, I don't know, minerals or whatever. Maybe when we eat our minerals, we're making our body worth a little more. I don't know. But, it's, but our body is worth maybe $5. Isn't it amazing what God could do with materials that are only worth maybe $5? The complexity of the human body. I'm reading a book right now. I'll probably put it in the church when I'm done with it. <clears throat> by Dave Hunt. And it's called... Uh, it's talking about creation. And uh, it's, it's really putting a, a wooden stake through the heart of evolution. Anyhow, here we have... He's saying, I pray that the, let the, this child's life return to him. Did he cease to exist? Was he gone? No. It had gone to another place. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 and 3. And he was transfigured. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ was showing his, giving his disciples a, a 
preview of what his resurrection body would look like. And he was transfigured before them, Peter, James, and John, that is. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Oh, Elijah and Moses? Well, they had been dead for a while, hadn't they? Well, I thought, if you cease to exist, if the soul dies when you die, what are they doing showing up with Christ, talking to him? Was that a mistake? I think not. Luke 16, 19 through 31. I won't even go into that. It's too much, too many verses there. This is uh, Lazarus and the rich man. That is not a parable. It's an account. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. But what does it say? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. His spirit was separated from his body. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Right now, all of us are not absent from our body. Our soul and our spirit is still inside this tent. But when we die, what happens is the body, these chemicals go into the ground, but we go and be with the Lord, the true us. Philippians 1, 22 through 24. But if I am to live on in this flesh, this will be fruitful labor for me, but I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So his, this is his, his, his choice, is if he dies, he's going to be where? What does it say? To be with the Lord? are to stay and be with them. It's not to die and cease to exist. Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If you hadn't noticed, that's our next verse. So I won't go into any detail right now. I'll go into it enough. But suffice it to say that God cannot bring those who have fallen asleep back with Him if... They didn't go there to begin with. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. I'll close on this one. Wow, it's time for me to close. Well, let me just at least... This, is, this was the last one I was going to give you. This is when he broke the fifth seal. This is in Revelation 6, 9 through 10. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of the Lord, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, without refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this is not referring to those who have been raptured. These are the tribulational martyrs. Guess what? They've been, says, those that are under the, the souls of those who had been slain and the souls that have been slain are talking to the Lord. Now, what is that all about if when you die, you cease to exist? If there's no consciousness, what are they doing talking? Well, I have more, but that's enough for tonight. So this idea of soul sleep just does not float. It is a heresy. Uh, we don't have to fear that when we take our last breath, if Christ has not returned, we don't cease to exist. Just the real us. Well, you know, the, way we, we, the best way to put it for believers is when a believer takes his last breath, he goes home. Because we're just visiting here. And there's nothing to fear about going home when your home is with God. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word that straightens so many things out challenges us to live the life that we are called to live. We must always be very alert of our behavior, always, but especially when we are around unbelievers. We thank you that we have nothing to fear, everything to look forward to. The death for the believer is just a relocation. It's all because of your grace. It doesn't depend upon us. It's because of your faithfulness and because of what Christ has done on our behalf.
We pray that we will get the message out, that people will see in our own lives how important it is to grow in grace and knowledge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.